Hey everybody, welcome back to the Grey Mulligan Lane podcast where queer friends and allies gather to review and discuss the original X-Men comics in continuity order. We are here for our mid-November episode, even though we are recording in early October. It's always weird when we have like five weeks between release, but I'm always happy to get ahead because that means I get a break sometimes. Uh, we're going to be reviewing the really campy, silly uh, Fantastic Four number 103 and the latter half of this show. I'll provide you with a recap for 102 if you did not hear our previous episode with the incredible combination of Moriwa Ayadele, uh, Dotun Akande, and Thorne Grunbeck. We had a really fun time, and today is going to be a similarly lovely time. I am thrilled to welcome my friends Justin Kosmachuk and um, a, a, a man I'm both friends with and a fan of, uh, Alex Segura. And I am really, really quite excited to be uh, meeting Jeremy Whitley for the first time today. I will save my praise for a minute, but I have a lot of really lovely things to say uh, about Jeremy in just a few minutes. Let me have each of you introduce yourselves. Uh, let me know your name, your gender pronouns, where we might know you from. And today's question, because Richard Nixon makes a weird appearance in our issue later, uh, have you ever met a United States president or, you know, been near one and or any other world leader that anyone falls into this uh, just fine? Uh, Jeremy, would you like to go first? Uh, hi, I am Jeremy Whitley. Uh, my pronouns are he and him. Uh, you probably, if you know my writing, you might know it from Unstoppable Wasp or the uh, Gwenpool uh, coming out story that we, that we did on uh, Marvel Unlimited, uh, as well as a number of other odds and ends. Uh, or you could know me from my creator-owned series, uh, Princeless, the uh, even more uh, gay Raven the Pirate Princess, that which is the sort of spinoff of that, or uh, the Dog Knight, or School for Extraterrestrial Girls, all of all of which are my my many many children. Um, as far as whether or not I've met a president. Um, I'll do one better. I have not met a president, but I have met Michelle Obama. So. Who should have been president. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. She she uh, came and presented at ALA one of the years I was there. It was actually when it was in New Orleans and wore like the most incredible, like bright gold dress. It was like walking down the hallways like a golden idol. Uh, that's fabulous. Uh, I was texting with my friend Erica Schultz today. She said to tell you hello. I'll do that at the beginning before I forget. <laughs> uh, let's, oh, thanks, let's go over to Alex Segura next. Hi, Alex. Great to see you. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, yes, Alex Segura. My pronouns are he, him. Uh, I'm the, I'm a novelist and comic book writer. I've written Secret Identity, which won the LA Times Book Prize. Um, Star Wars novel, Poe Dameron, Freefall, uh, and the new Spider-Verse novel, Aranya and Spider-Man 2099, Dark Tomorrow, which is a YA Spider-Verse book. Um, I've also written a ton of comics, creator-owned, and for Marvel and DC. Um, and yeah. the recent arc on X-Men Unlimited Infinity about Polaris, which we'll talk about today. Yes, yes, that was my most recent uh, thing for Marvel. And I have not met a president or a president adjacent person but when i was a cub reporter uh in the early aughts i did cover i was at a city council meeting and the the mayor collapsed <laughs> so he he got better but it was a definitely a why did we send the intern to this <laughs> thing kind of moment <laughs> uh and then over to justin kosmachuk next hi i got to hang out with justin twice this summer it's good to see your face again hi my friend yes it's good to see you as well so um i'm justin i go by j cosmic online I primarily cosplay, um, outside of cosplay, 
Um, I do work in property management, but we're not here to talk about that. And uh, my pronouns are he, him. And um, regarding a president, I live in Canada. So I can't say I've really had any opportunity to meet a president. Um, I guess the closest thing, which is uh, um, Ted Cruz is from here. So, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Dislike. Yeah. (laughs) I I used to work in the same town Madison Cawthorn is from, so not doing much better. Yeah, Madison's I'm from Miami, Florida, so yeah, we don't have a lot of great politicians in Florida. (laughs) And I'm from Utah, where we get fine candidates like Mike Lee and Jason Chaffetz, so none of us have anything to apologize (laughs) for, I suppose. Uh, Lastly, I'm Chad Anderson. I use he, him pronouns. You guys know me as the host of the show. I'm also a former Marvel Comics handbook writer, a documentarian, and a memoirist. I, uh, the only time I've ever come into the same room as a president was when I was in the sixth grade, uh, George Bush uh, George W. Bush, when he was vice president, I think, uh, came to give a speech at our school. And I just remember being very bored. But I have met Lenore's and the voice of George Rose, H. Was... W. Bush then, right? Yeah. He's yeah. Vice president. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. It was like I was I was worried about this story where this story where George W. Bush came into your classroom was ending. If this was yeah. in a September <laughs> somewhere. Clearly, it, like, it had a tremendous <laughs> impact on me. But I have met and I'm friends with Lenore Zan, the voice of Rogue, who also was in the Canadian Parliament. So we will count that as my world leader experience. <laughs> wow, she was in the Parliament. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. She's, she's, she's she wasn't incredible. really from the South. Nope. Nope. Real surprise. Love her husky voice. At the Uncanny Experience, Lenore Zan got up and sang karaoke. Uh, she did Patsy Cline at the at the Dazzler rock concert. It was a fantastic time. In Rogue's voice? <laughs> voice? Uh, I mean, it was her voice, but it was Patsy Cline, so yeah. basically. Yeah, yeah. There you go. <laughs> uh, we're going to open the show. Uh, Jeremy, I'm going to get like real sentimental real quickly. I am a gay Uh-oh. man. I am 44. I came out at 32. I've been reading Marvel comics my entire life. I also have two cheer to two queer children, one who is gay and one who is non-binary. You uh, I've gotten to interview a lot of really incredible writers that I love over the years, but you are one of the people over the last 15 years who has written the most queer content from a personal incredible space uh, at Marvel specifically, which is what I primarily read. Your stories about Gwenpool being asexual, your stories with the character Shay Smith and Ying in Unstoppable Wasp, uh, your stories with Lightspeed and Ricky Barnes, uh, and on and on, have been so representative, and not just queer characters who are sexual and out, but like young women or non-binary people who are exploring identity in stories that seem to be geared toward children, stories that I can sit down and read with my children, who get to see these characters who are fully formed, who have conflict, who have conflict resolution, and who have rich lives. And the themes of mental illness and conflict within these stories are so beautifully done. I got to sit down and read uh, Dog Night with my kids you shared with me uh, recently, and it was a very much a similar story. And to see my children interacting with the characters that you have written uh, and gearing these stories toward kids, it's so great to meet you, my friend. I'm such an enormous fan of the incredible work you're doing. So thank you, thank you from the queer part of me and the dad part of me uh, <laughs> aligned in one place. Uh, I want to hear more of your story, but I wanted to begin there in this very sappy space because it means a lot to me. Thank you. You you make me blush. Um, yeah, I, it's it's always been important to me. It was, it was the thing that like, 
from the very beginning, you know, the my first my first book that really got any sort of space or attention or was in a comic book store uh, was was Princeless, which has uh, sort of I, I would describe it as ace themes of of like you know not needing a uh, a significant other, not needing you know uh, romantic love to be a whole person to be a princess for that matter. Like, um, you know, she's just, Adrian is sort of has her own things she wants to do and uh, relationships do not really play a part in that. Um, so like that was uh, an important start for me. And I think like it was something that I wanted to, you know, I, I have daughters myself and like um, my wife is black. So obviously my, my children are black and it was just like, I wanted my daughter to be able to see a, a princess who looked like her and sort of live. It was always sort of the theme of like meeting kids where they're at with the princess stuff. Cause you can't make little girls not like princesses. They might not like them if they don't want to, but you can't make them not like them. So like having this character who started out as a princess and then was like, I'm going to go kick ass uh, was, you know, important to me. But then I feel like with, with that story, like I had several, uh, queer women asked me about like, oh, is, you know, is Adrian gay? Is, is that, you know, part of the story? And I was like, it's, it's sort of intentionally beside the point in this story. Like at the point that it starts being about her being gay, then the idea of like not needing a man becomes a different, you know, for a different reason. Um, and I wanted to make sure that that state is sort of like the central thing. Um, also, I, I don't really see Adrian as, having any kind of romantic relationships, honestly, uh, which has turned into a bit of a theme thanks to like Unstoppable Wasp and then Gwenpool, um, you know, having characters who are, who uh, importantly to me are on the ace spectrum, um, but also don't necessarily fit in the sort of box that people put ace characters, ace people into a lot of, of like, being robotic or not caring about other people at all or or any of those things like that was very important to me with Nadia especially is that Nadia is a character who is effusive and bubbly and excited and, and having a having a great time and loves other people is particularly excited about meeting other people because you know she grew up in the red room so she didn't really have many other people around um but that like she she can be that and also not be interested in romantic relationships and also be a person experiencing issues with, with mental health with you know her bipolar disorder um because it's very important to me that she be something very different from hank pym in that way because i think the the way largely as a result of the time and as a result of a lot of people writing and the way that like mental health has been handled in her father's case and hank pym's case is really not great. <laughs> Let's say not great. He's been merged um, with an evil robot for like 20 years. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah. There's evil robot. There's him, you know, beating Janet. There's, uh, <clears throat> I mean, basically anything that was written with him in the early 2000s is, is pretty suspect. Um, <laughs> there's a lot of weird stuff going on there. Um but yeah, it's it's important to me also as you know somebody who, as over the course of writing these stories, has you know myself come to terms with being you know demisexual and being on the the ace spectrum. Um, it was important to see representation like that that is is 
not the same sort of three types of you know ace characters that you see in a story if you if they ever even get to come out um and you know that was a big thing with Gwenpool is that like this is a character who is obviously like effusive and loud and excited and cares about stuff and, and is invested I think as a lot of like people I know who are ace is very still invested in like shipping and like you know other other characters romantic relationships but maybe like doesn't have that same those same feelings herself and a lot of that I we a lot of that related strongly back to stuff we were talking about with X-Men in that story as well uh we could start in about eight different places but let's start with Nadia for just a moment uh my single favorite issue that you've written uh you know X-Men fans love a complicated Summers family crazy uh you know Wanda and Wonder Man and Vision and the Quicksilver like that whole crazy mess you have this issue of Nadia just confronting her complicated family tree and she's so fucking happy the whole way through. She's like, oh my God, you are my dad's scroll templates tiger baby that he'd never met. I love you. You're my nephew. Let's make it happen. <laughs> it's just that she's so excited the whole way through. I would love to hear a little bit about the creation of Nadia Van Dyne uh, and uh, and your work with this character. Uh, your, your work with her bipolar disorder is so stunningly uh, beautiful as well. Thank you. Yeah, um, she was a, a character that I I inherited after I think like her first two or three appearances. She she popped up in the Avengers free comic book day story that Mark Wade wrote and was in a couple issues of Avengers. And um I at that point had been uh friends with, with Mark for a little bit and uh I had asked him some questions about various science stuff because Mark knows a lot of science stuff. Um and I'd asked him about some some stuff with comics, and uh, he was uh, he basically like, as as I understand it, was uh, told Tom Brevoort like, yeah, you should talk to Jeremy about doing this comic, which uh, I am eternally grateful for. Um, and like, you know, they they sort of gave me this runway of like, all right, she's appeared three times. Um, do you know? Do what you want to with her. Uh, figure it out. You know, I think the the biggest thing they were concerned about was like not doing too much that conflicted too directly with the sort of condescent or with the character in the movie that sort of relates to her. Um, so, you know, I, I got sort of a, a the, wide the birth. Hope Van Dyne character. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Not the same. <laughs> yeah. Similar in some origin aspects and that they are small superheroes with wings. That's about, that's about it. They're both Hank Pym's, daughter other than that there's not much else going on there um yeah i wanted to like i felt like there was this trap of her being a kid who came from the red room of like it would be very easy to make her another black widow just with some science stuff um and there's already perhaps too many of those <laughs> um <clears throat> so i was like i, I want to go a different direction and particularly i thought the science stuff was really interesting and I thought, like, I wanted to, like, hark back to sort of the golden and silver age of, of comics where, you know, there were so many science-based heroes and they were all science adventurers, but they were also all guys. Um, you know, they we didn't have female scientist characters in, in those books to go out and have two-fisted science adventures. So I was like, you know, I, I want to really focus down on the science. And I think, like, I've wanted to put together this lab of of 
you know, female scientist characters. Um, and I, I think much to his credit, Tom Brevoort was like, don't pull a bunch of existing female characters into this story. Like, it will stop being Nadia's story at the point that you, like, have Julie Power and Moon Girl and all these other, you know, science characters in there. Um, and when you pull in Nightshade, it's not it's not Nadia's book anymore. Um, so we we created, you know, all the agents girl characters. And um, so he, up... he establishes a full super lab for teenage girls who are diverse. And it's called G.I.R.L. Uh, it's incredible. There's a character with cerebral palsy. There's uh, culturally diverse characters and they have complex relationships with their families and with each other. It's I love it. I love the girl lab. It, I keep you. going. Yeah, I mean, I I wanted that group to be sort of reflective of New York City. Um, because like so many of the characters are supposed to be from New York. And um, I think unfortunately we end up with uh, an overall group of, especially like the, you know, biggest characters are, are not necessarily reflective of what New York looks like in the same way that a lot of nineties uh, movies or TV shows that are supposed to take place in New York aren't, aren't reflective of New York. Um, but I wanted to get like characters from different neighborhoods and different cultures and, and everything mixed in there. Um, and that was, that was supposed to be just sort of the first part of this story. Uh, it ended up being the entire first volume because it got cut kind of short. Um, so, you know, we, we put the lab together and then we had our sort of confrontation and then, uh, the story was just about over by then we, we got to eight issues. Um, but it had always been a thing that I, I wanted to do to do a story with, uh, Nadia having bipolar disorder. We sort of hinted that, I think, in the first first story I wrote with her, which is in Avengers that I, I co-wrote with Mark. Um, and so, like, that got canceled. And when we got a chance to come back and do another volume, I was like, all right, we have to do that this time. Like, I cannot leave that on the table a second time. Um, and so, you know, we we built up a little bit of a, an action story around it and some excitement and advanced some of the other relationships you know a few a few months or whatever it was in there um but like i i knew we had to come we had to have something that would sort of trigger nadia having this episode and um i really wanted to make sure we got to that and then uh that we had enough time to really like feel that out and see sort of the results of it um so we i actually did a lot of like interviews and test reading and stuff of, of this uh, of particularly those like two issues that discuss her bipolar disorder uh i had like a group that i ended up putting together that had like four people that have bipolar disorder and then like uh and a, a psychologist and like three or four people who were like caretakers of, of people with with bipolar disorder um that you know i i just wanted to like get the perspectives, make sure the way that everybody was not only acting, but reacting uh, felt right. And, um, you know, that we didn't, we weren't unfair to anybody in that story. Yeah, there's um, a lot of drama and a lot of pathos, but it ends with, it ends with her in a place of like taking responsibility for herself, taking accountability and learning that self-care is uh, crucial. I'm going to, I'm going to draw the line across the board here for just a moment. Speaking of bipolar disorder, uh, I got the chance to review the entire history of the character Lorna Dane or Polaris uh, for her trial on my show. 
and she was once diagnosed with bipolar and uh, PTSD uh, right after I began. I, I felt like I got a college thesis of this character. And then suddenly she got an X-Men Unlimited Infinity arc as written by uh, the incredible uh, Alex Segura, which was wonderful. Alex, I'd love to hear about your work with Polaris for a minute. Oh, thanks. Yeah. Uh, Jeremy, it's great to hear you just kind of elaborate on this book that I was a fan of as it was coming out. So it's it's always cool to hear like the thought process and the uh, the journey to get there. Um, yeah, uh, Lauren Amaro reached out to me. We'd done a few Marvel Voices stories together for the Comunidades uh, print collections. And she asked, and I tried to kind of wait a minute or two before responding yes, if I wanted to do uh, an X-Men Unlimited arc. <laughs> and then we, we we started going back and forth on characters. And I mean, I've had an affinity for Polaris, no pun intended, since uh, I think my first clear memory of her was, was sadly her being possessed by malice during the... Uh, during the Outback era of X-Men, the Sylvester Claremont stuff. And, um, and then more definitively her as, as part of X-Factor, uh, Peter David's initial run with Larry Stroman and, and that magnificent Larry Stroman hair from those first few issues. But I, I think the big thing that uh, drew me to her as a character was to really give her some agency after this long series of, stories and arcs where she was no longer in control of herself you know where she was very much beholden to somebody else and and it doesn't it doesn't start with malice it goes back to as as you read the story you know it's like eric the red mesmero you know uh zaladane like she has uh she's been on this trajectory where she's had to fight off these villain you know these villains from controlling her and i wanted to tell a story where she's cumulatively still reeling from that you know she's still kind of very much shaken from this but she she takes up her own agency and and really establishes herself in a new way i didn't want it to be another another story where someone takes control of her and she wins in the end i wanted it to be something where she she doesn't even get to that point she knows her track record she knows her weaknesses she knows what she's been through um but i also wanted to play with that doubt you know uh especially when you know when you when you are out of control or you lose control of yourself you start to wonder well what did i do what have i done um and i wanted to play with with that gray area that like kind of weird space between definitively knowing what you've done and not really knowing what you've done and i th i thought that was pretty fertile territory for her and then um and she gets to break yeah. out of it she gets to go wait a minute someone's controlling yeah. me yeah, yeah, yeah. And I wanted her, I wanted <laughs> the big thing I told Lauren was that I wanted it to feel like a noir. I wanted it to be an X-Men noir story with Lorna as the flawed kind of tainted knight protagonist, like our, our kind of ex Philip Marlowe uh, character. But I also wanted to pair her up with an unlikely partner. Um, and I love Danny Moonstar. I, you know, I'm a huge fan of the original Claremont New Mutant stuff. And obviously she's evolved a great deal since then. But um Particularly, I, I love what, what Vida Ayala did on, on New Mutants with Rod Rice with the character. Um, and though they're both long-running X characters, I can't think, aside from major crossovers, where they just happen to be on the page together, of them interacting closely together. So it felt like pretty pretty fresh territory and and having Danny show up and and keep Lauren. And, and the twist being that Danny's the one that needs to be saved at the end as opposed to her coming to save Lorna, which is you have the sense that she's showing up like, oh, we have to clean up Lorna's mess again. But, you know, flipping that script was a little fun and, and, and trying to kind of tee up the surprise of the villain. A lot of, I got a lot of nice emails saying I had no idea it was going to be that person or, you know, it, it, it was really fun to put together. And, um, 
And, and I don't want to say it's, uh, it's it's fucking Mesmero. The only yeah, guy to ever get 100% on my show as far as the asshole score. He's yeah, a 100% asshole Mesmero. Uh, but I also have a soft spot for Mesmero. I really, one of my earliest X-Men issues was um, a classic X-Men reprint of that John Byrne uh, issue where Mesmero has turned all the X-Men into circus performers, you know, you know, um, and the beast is showing up and he's the only clear headed cause he's, he's with the Avengers at that point. So he's not even an X-Man and he, he starts kind of wandering through the circus and finding all the, the X-Men and the big twist is it's Mesmero controlling them. Um, I always thought he had a cool costume and I, I wanted to kind of play up with that idea of the villain that keeps failing. And you that, know, was a, to... that was before he, uh, he raped Marrow. I'll just leave that there. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Just, I think of Mesmero in that like suggestive pose in that John Byrne era. Oh, his like yeah. man spread. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There are, and there also is a particularly creepy now that you mentioned it, you know, there is that creepy John Bolton backup from that issue of classic X-Men where he is not a great person. <laughs> yeah. Entirely fair. Alex, uh, I know you can write an incredibly strong female protagonist uh, being a huge fan of secret identity, but it was oh, really thanks. fun to see you tackle X-Men continuity. And I hope we get more, my friend. You're, you're really good at this. Fingers crossed. Thank you. Um, I want to jump to Gwenpool for a minute, who is a character that I do not want to like. (laughs) (laughs) Gwenpool kind of got forced. uh, I don't know. She got a long run in a comic book. I'm the Marvel guy who like keeps up the databases. So I got to read it all. And I didn't want to like her. But the more she stuck around, the more I kind of got used to her kind of agent of chaos vibe. Uh, But she's so much. uh, And then she had this run in West Coast Avengers where they just kind of embraced that. They paired her with Kid Omega, of all people, which was a wild combination. Uh, And then they brought her to Krakoa because she's always wanting to stay relevant so that she can be a featured character. And suddenly she's a mutant who can bend reality. There's a long history here we're not going to get into. Uh, Which takes (laughs) us up to Love Unlimited, where Jeremy Whitley got to take this character. Uh, Pair her up with Lightspeed from uh, Power Pack for a minute and have her come out as asexual. How did this crazy story happen? Because it's uh, it's so good, and it's the most I've ever loved this character. Yeah, uh, so Alana and I, Alana is my editor on that book, Alana Smith, who was my editor on uh, Unstoppable Wasp as well, had been sort of talking about doing something with, with Nadia coming out, and there was a little bit of, like, nervousness around that, and... Um, also, I, I think because it was so like spurred on by the fact that there was a movie about the character called the Wasp, people there was a little bit of hesitance there. And then, you know, on top of that, we we ended up doing the whole like bipolar story arc. So it's like there there wouldn't have been enough room to do anything with it well at that point. Um, and so it, it just sort of it didn't happen, and we've talked about it since then. And she's sort of been one of those characters that's like, I think. In in fanon, you know, Nadia has always sort of been ace or, or at the very least queer. Um, and that was always sort of our intention. Um, but when, uh, you know, between that second volume of, of Unstoppable Wasp coming out and um, and Gwenpool, I uh, also came out as Demi. And um, Olana had this, like, goal as, as an editor who is ace herself to put together a whole team of people who are on the ace spectrum sort of uh ace ace x-men uh to to do this story and so to self invite alana smith (laughs) on my show uh proceed (laughs) oh absolutely yeah alana's great so yeah it was was me alana and bailey uh rosalind and uh kelly fitzpatrick all of whom are on the ace spectrum um and 
that was such a like fascinating thing too because i as i was sort of like putting it together like it had been fanon to some extent that uh you know that she was was ace or something there's a lot of like everybody was sure that gwen was something that wasn't straight <laughs> like um there was like i feel like three or four competing fandoms in that area um and you know she uh, Lon had gotten the okay to write to have us do this story where she uh you know came out as ace and i was like i feel like there's not a lot of like ace coming out stories in the way that there are a lot of gay and to some extent bi coming out stories um but like this was part, uh, of the, part of the brilliance, if I may interject, is her discovery of this because she's like she kisses Lightspeed and is like, oh, I kind of like it, but I'm not sure it doesn't feel quite right. It's not what I thought it was supposed to be. And her realization that she's asexual, uh, it's a really powerful uh, character journey, much like what you do. And I'm, I'm sorry to change the subject. I'm not trying to shift uh, much like what you do in Dog Night with uh, your character kind of figuring out what their gender expression is. They knew they were non-binary. But how does this look? And it's only through experimentation that I get to figure out who I am. Uh, keep going. I just wanted to interject there. Yeah, I, thank you. Uh, I think with um, with Gwyn, we wanted to like make it something where you know she was sort of figuring it out as she went because obviously she'd had that relationship in West Coast Avengers. Um, there were some people that felt really strongly about that relationship and in, in the fandom, um, even though. I feel like in West Coast Avengers, even in that point, she is like, yeah, I'm just doing this to be relevant. Um, and then, you know, sort of gets her feelings hurt in in hurting Quentin's feelings. Um, and that's sort of a recurring thing, I, I think, with her as a character. I mean, girl, you she... can do way better than Quentin Choir. <laughs> <laughs> just about anybody can, honestly. Um, <laughs> Sorry, but, like, sort, of this, sort of this thing of like, her figuring it out through her fandom to some extent is was interesting to me because like you know I I said this thing early on when I was writing it about like oh yeah she's got a thing for uh wither because like isn't that funny it's just like the gambit and rogue thing you know oh of course she really wants this like extremely uh extremely romantic in quotation marks relationship of like this this guy that she can't touch and can't touch her because that's the the perfect asexual sexual fantasy right like of of you know of course like there's this guy that she she can feel this way about but she doesn't actually have to do any of the stuff um and then like it's you know it's the Krakoa era so of course I was like yeah and you know that's not a problem anymore he's just got that fixed it's fine um off panel um and immediately she's like no what this this can't be it and so you know she decides to all right she's gonna make it dramatic she's gonna have like a you know love triangle and that doesn't work um she ends up feeling bad about it and they end up both being like oh no it's cool man we're we're, we're buddies um so this takes us it. this takes us to a category of Jeremy Whitley's little known X-Men work. Uh we got to see you approach the character Wither in this story that you're referencing. Uh you got to write Secret Empire Underground, which gives up my favorite villain, Sauron and the Savage Land Mutates, a beautiful place to shine. You also got to use the characters Leech and Artie in your future foundation work. Uh, mm. So for, th for those of you that may want some obscure X-Men history, uh, Jeremy has touched that. I'd love to hear about your relationship to the X-Men, if you have one. Yeah, I mean, I, I 
grew up on the X-Men uh, comics and cartoon, you know, the original X-Men cartoon. Um, you know, I also was deeply in love with with Rogue and liked to throw playing cards around the house. Um, you know, Gambit was it's just so cool when you're 10. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, but you know, I, I, my dad was a big comic book nerd as well. So I, I got pulled into comics through that and uh, just it sort of got into X-Men at that golden age where like you could get a videotape of the X-Men with your personal pan pizza at Pizza Hut. Like, you know, <laughs> I remember this era. <laughs> yeah, it's it's I mean, I feel like everybody that's roughly my age was a huge fan of X-Men at some point. Um, and I, I've always I've always enjoyed them. They're sort of what got me back into reading superhero comics as well. Um, but it was it's always been really interesting to like there's so many. I don't I don't want to say ghettos because that's sort of a charged word, but all these sort of like areas that the X-Men visit that when the X-Men leave, they cease to exist like the Savage Land, like Louis or <laughs> like Louisiana, New Orleans, because um, <laughs> like I feel like I could write a whole series just about like Belladonna and her assassins. They're so cool. Like. They're so incredibly cool, but they cease to exist as soon as Gambit leaves. Um, uh, early announcement, right after this episode, we're going to drop an episode on the Patreon all about Kandra. Uh, Sarah Gailey's joining me for that one. So I just reread all of the, the Assassins and Thieves Guild stuff. Uh, Justin, what's your sweet spot for uh, for X-Men? If you think back to like your fondest memories. You know, looking back, again, um, an era I'm really nostalgic for is the 2000s, just because Again, that's when I really started reading the books regularly. Like, um, I look at Mike Carey, Brubaker, or Brubaker. Not sure how you say it, but one of those two. <laughs> um, those really stuck with me and just have always left an impression. Uh, do you have questions for our guests, Justin? Yes. So um, I did have a question for Jeremy. <clears throat> Just getting over a cold here. <laughs> so when yeah. Gwen and Nadia came out, um, how was that received? Just because um, hearing you talk about Nadia and Gwen's sexualities, um, it actually has me intrigued to check them out just because I will admit I haven't read it, but, you know, I'm intrigued. And I do understand the importance of LGBT plus um, representation, and it's cool seeing the asexual community represented. Yeah. Um... I feel like I I feel like Nadia's Nadia's actual coming out has come sort of post Gwenpool coming out because they they did a uh, a story in the um, the Pride issue with you know with Gwen sort of putting together a, a team of ace characters and uh, Nadia sort of indirectly comes out in that story uh, is, is pulled out I think by Gwen honestly um, but with Gwen. It was really interesting because, like, I knew where we were going from the beginning. I, you know, had all six issues of it written before the first one was even advertised. You know, we were we were set to go. We knew where we were going. And then what I didn't realize about, like, having it come out as it did sort of a, a week at a time is that everybody reading its perception of Gwen's sexuality would change every week. <laughs> um, that, like... After the, sorry, after like the second issue where she 
meets Julie. And then, you know, the third issue where she and Julie start dating that like there would be this big reaction from the lesbian community online that was like, yes, she's one of us. And occasionally for a couple of people, no, I hate her. She can't be one of us Um, (laughs) because she is very divisive character. Um, But like seeing everybody get very hyped about it. And knowing where, like where we were going, like the next week, I, as as it was happening, I was like, "Oh, good. I don't, I don't know how this is going to go." Um, but I, I think overall, like where we landed, people were seemed pretty happy with it overall. Um, it was generally accepted. The same, you know, the same group of uh, online assholes had the same problems with it they do with everything. Um, you know, they they didn't read it. Somebody else told them about it, and so they felt really bad about it. Um, you know, so uh, I, I think overall, though, like it was it was really well accepted. There were obviously a handful of people who still like in uh, in this day and age have no idea what that means. Um, and, you know, I think we sort of we sort of saw that coming in the story and that like when when Julie is like, have you ever thought that maybe you're asexual? Gwen is like picturing like paramecium in her brain she's just like seeing a slideshow of asexual reproduction and you know julie literally has to sort of walk into it and be like nope 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 you're going the wrong direction um clean it up this this direction um so it's, uh, it's, it's sort of interesting because of the nature of it because she's so fourth wall breaky and it's all set you know in the it's in the unlimited app so it's very it's very online um as she is so like we got to sort of run into that stuff head first and just be like, all right, this is the, this is what people are going to think. This is what people are going to say. We're just going to say it first. Like listeners, make sure you're checking out Jeremy's work, Jeremy. And I'll, I'll save this kind of as my final compliment here before we transition into our issue review. Uh, you have tapped into the voice of a younger generation. I know you've done like rainbow bright and my little pony speaking as the father of a 14 year old who's in ninth grade. It is becoming increasingly common for kids to identify as pansexual, as uh, asexual, as non-binary. And the categories that we had growing up have expanded into new things. And you have a way of doing superhero comics that appeals to this younger generation. And that's needed at Marvel so badly, as well as other places. It's really lovely meeting you and hearing your thought process because you're doing incredible work and you've tapped into a space where kids really need this representation in their books. So thank you for the work you're doing. I really appreciate that. Thank you. I did uh, have one. Oh, sorry. Oh, please go ahead. I did have one other question. Um, kind of relating to Marvel Voices. Um, for Alex, um, I did see that um you did do some Marvel Voices work, and I just wanted to know, like, um, if there were any characters you haven't had the chance to write that you'd like to write for Marvel Voices. Yeah, I mean, um, I got to do Sunspot was the first one I got to do. Uh, that was my first Marvel work, uh, which was a thrill just as a lifelong X-Men fan. And I think there's a lot of underutilized uh, Latinx X characters. You know, it's like Richter. So it's so fun. Yeah. <laughs> oh, thank you. Yeah, Risque. There's so many. Uh, you know, I, I uh, you know, you could probably build a, an entire Latinx men team if you wanted to. But um, 
Yeah, I think those come to mind. I I have a great fondness for Miguel O'Hara, who I got to write in a novel in the the, the Spider Verse novel. But I love I love the character. It's, it was really an important moment for me, just in terms of identification as a you know a Cuban kid living in Miami who loved Peter Parker. Seeing a, a Latinx Spider Man was really important to me as a kid, and so it it would it was a thrill to write him in prose, and it would be cool to write him in comics or or Aranya as well. I remember that moment uh, being really uh, really pivotal for. For me as a reader so um yeah those are the ones off the top of my head uh alex i i don't answer these questions until the end but i'm excited to read your marvel zombies zombie story and i'm really excited to hear an update on how the sequel to secret identity is coming and yes. i'm really, really <laughs> hoping you have more news for us too because i think you're fantastic thank uh, you okay we're gonna uh, transition into our issue review here let me do a quick recap, and then I've got an introductory question for each of you. Uh, I love being able to put together this old Silver Age content that nobody else is touching and seeing the level of talent that's coming on uh, to, like, being willing to review these old comics with me is such a pleasure. Thank you uh, both for being, or all three of you for being here. In Fantastic Four number 102, to recap, the Submariner and his Atlantean army found an unconscious Magneto in the Savage Land, and they brought him back to Atlantis. And this is Magneto in his, like, ranting supervillain era, drawn by Jack Kirby, looking like an absolute crazy man. And this issue is particularly famous because this is Jack Kirby's final issue of the Fantastic Four before he leaves the book. Uh, of course, he does work later, but uh, this is the end of an era. In Atlantis, Magneto found a device that expanded his magnetic powers. And somehow, from Antarctica all the way to, like, New York, things are just fucking flying around the city. There's, like, pieces ripping off buildings. Uh, the thing has a cold. There's all this crazy shit happening. The Fantastic Four use a probe to discover that these forces, these magnetic forces, are coming from Atlantis. So Reed sends a sonic shockwave to test it, which causes all the Atlantean buildings to, like, shake and collapse. Which, of course, Namor interprets as an act of war because... Reed could have just picked up the phone for some reason. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, the thing pushes a button, which then sends a missile to Atlantis. And now Namor's like, fuck the Fantastic Four. Fuck humans. We're going to war. And Magneto's like, don't forget about me. Remember, I'm just as good as you are. Like, I'm so important. He's so horny for Namor in this issue. Uh, <laughs> it's uh, it's it's actually quite impressive. So we're jumping into FF number 103, which is all about uh, the war between the Atlanteans and the surface world. Uh, in 102, Namor is like, I'm a very reasonable person. I would never attack the the surface world unless I had just cause. And we're like, bitch, you've already done this like 10 times. <laughs> it's only 1970. <laughs> uh, so this issue 103 comes out in October 1970. It's called At War with Atlantis. Uh, Stanley is the writer and editor. We have beautiful pencils by John Romita. Uh, uh, John Verporten's on inks and Sam Rosen is the inker. Uh, or excuse me, is the letterer. Uh, I would love to hear from uh, from all three of you. Is this an era of comics you are familiar with? Is this the story you had read before? What are some of your thoughts on this early Fantastic Four uh, era? Alex, do you want to take that one first? Sure, yeah. I mean, um, the Fantastic Four, Silver Age Fantastic Four is a little bit of a blind spot for me. I've, I've read all the classic stories, but I've not read the, I, I guess this is blas blasphemous, but I have not read the whole uh lee kirby run in sequence i've read pretty much most of it in pieces but um i'm uh yeah no i'm, I'm something i'm saving up for myself but the uh silver age magneto is such such an outlier when you know he gets developed so much more deeply and becomes this layered and complicated character by claremont um so it's kind of funny to see i think it was blamed on 
you know, it was blamed on what radiation was driving him insane or something was going on that His kind of excused... were going mad or yes. Yeah, right. Was... Something there was some little retcon that basically explained why he acted this way and then became this very nuanced character uh, years later. But well, he got he turned was... into a baby and then Moira yes. Staggart fucked with his brain and turned him into like a nicer, more reasonable person. That's the, that's the early continuity version. <laughs> yeah, one of one of the best panels in comic history is uh, is uh, the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants being turned into babies. But we'll um, get there on my show, I promise. Yeah, no, I can't wait. But I think, uh, I mean, this issue, especially in the historical context of being, I guess, one of the, the first issue after Kirby leaves, is interesting because you see the team kind of scrambling to set a new tone. I mean, Ramita is great; he's a fantastic artist. I, I always connect him much more with spider-man uh and daredevil but it's it's really cool to see him draw this top level marvel action and i love you know i love you love namor chewing the scenery and um it's kind of interesting i i had forgotten that there was this five member era you know where crystal's on the team sort of and sue is you know on maternity leave it's just a i thought it was fun it was it was pretty bonkers not a lot of rational thought coming from the villains but entertaining and, and i read it in like five minutes so the cover of this book is really fun. The fantastic car, uh, fantastic car is flying through the air. Thing is leaping out of it. Human Torch is leaping out of it. Reed is like stretching out of it as Namor bursts from the ocean. Uh, the thing battles Namor, it says. And uh, we, we see a tagline say, shocking, the FF and Namor both meet defeat. Uh, spoilers. Uh, <laughs> Jeremy, what is your relationship to this era? And any thoughts on this cover? Um. It's it's interesting to me because I've I've read a lot of sort of the first hundred Fantastic Four, you know the Lee Kirby stuff. I'm, I'm familiar with the things that would go on to I think inform the Marvel universe a bit more. Uh, this one is a little uh, is is a blind spot for me. I had not read this one previously. Um, it does have that very like welcome to die Magneto <laughs> um, in it of of like he's just he's just evil for the hell of it. Um, but it, it also really it's it's interesting reading it how like obvious it is how you know that this was made in the sort of Marvel method because there's a lot of like panels where it's like and I guess Reed is saying something here because um, like there's like the panel where uh, <laughs> where Namor says unhand me air breathers and Reed is letting him go. So, like, in the panel, Reed is like, I guess there's no reason not to. Like, <laughs> right. this dialogue is literally like, sure, why not? And then, like, it's, you know, there's a thing of the ship, and then we're seeing the, you know, Atlantean princess on the screen. So, like, in the previous one, in the previous panel, there's just a guy standing outside of the ship like, uh, Namor, you got to come see this. This uh, princess is on the screen. Uh, my listeners will know how fond I am of like 60s Marvel women. Uh, we get an appearance by Lady Dorma in this issue and next. This may be the only time she ever shows up on my show, but I'm weirdly nostalgic for Lady Dorma. Uh, Justin, before we jump in, perhaps the most important question for today. Uh, fuck, Mary kill. Human Torch. Namor. Magneto. Um, let's see. So, Human Torch. So fuck Mary Kill. Oh man. You're you're taking this so seriously. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's see. You know what? I'm gonna say Mary for Magneto. He's been through enough. And um He deserves a good mat at home. <laughs> Durant and Rave at. <laughs> exactly. And also daddy issues. 
<laughs> um, Fox? Easily the best fashion sense of the three, too. Yeah, <laughs> especially in this issue. I guess for fuck, it would be Namor, just because... Um, uh, yeah, I'd have to say Namor for fuck. And then I guess by process of elimination, um, kill for Johnny. He's also not really my type, so... I'm not into the pretty pretty boy douchebag type. <laughs> I, I think that's entirely fair. Uh, okay, we're going to jump into this issue. I'm going to summarize the first five pages. And then we, we don't get to answer the fuck, Mary. Oh, do you want to? <laughs> I mean, I identify as a Ben Grimm, so like, it's obviously kill Human Torch. Um, <laughs> so like, I, I think I think it lines up right on right exactly the same as Justin's, like because. Uh, you know, Magneto is having a hard time here, but overall, a much better person. Namor is, I feel like, the definition of fuckboy. Like, he's just kind of, he's, he, you wouldn't want to, you wouldn't want to deal with him after a long day, right? You wouldn't want to have to come home to Namor just proclaiming at you and telling you what to do. Cause he's it, a lot. Yeah. Uh, um, you know, Alex, I'll let you play too. Uh, Dorma, Sue, and Crystal. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, <laughs> Who would I kill? Um, it's a trap. I, They're know, all unconscious. Yeah. For some reason. I mean, Crystal is so is such an agent of chaos in like the best way. So, um, I would. I guess I would kill Dorma and and Mary Sue and and Crystal would just fill the final category. <laughs> that, that's entirely fair. Well, I yeah. guess yeah. relating to Crystal too. Um, it wasn't. Like I'm a sorry, I'm like a dad to two young kids, so like my <laughs> cursing filter has been silenced. <laughs> <laughs> since our last since our last show with Erica Schultz, I did not realize how annoying Crystal was in this era. Erica and now reading it, it's like holy crap. I I see why why she says what she says about Crystal. <laughs> I love well, I would almost it's all, it's fascinating in how messy she is. I mean, if you read the Vision and Scarlet Witch miniseries, like she she while well, Quicksilver's in a coma, I think, and she hooks up with the real estate agent and, and is they're married. It's just like this whole like she just like just wrecks things and it's, I love, it's fascinating I love to watch. her for that reason. I uh yeah. she's at her worst when she's trying to pretend to be Storm. She's like, I command the elements, you know, like that's yeah. Yeah, <laughs> that's what I get. She's at. messy when she's on the Avengers too. It's, it's fascinating. <laughs> it's like sit down, princess. You're not the queen. <laughs> uh, we do get some Medusa content in my show in the near future. We'll talk about that later because Magneto goes on from fighting these guys to fighting the Inhumans in his weirdest story of all time. Uh, we'll get that oh, yeah. later in this month. Okay, I'm going to cover the first five pages quickly. Uh, Namor and his Aztec soldier-dressed Atlanteans are in some sort of air-breathing chamber with Magneto. They're watching the Fantastic Four on a television screen, and they realize that the heroes are ready for war. Magneto says, the time to attack is now, Namor, now! And Namor responds, Magneto, stand back. None tell Prince Namor when to give a command. Uh, meanwhile, the Fantastic Four have alerted the Pentagon about the war, and the thing is like, oh great, Nixon's probably out to lunch, and now we're going to have to deal with Spiro Agnew, which is hilarious. And <laughs> to this day, Spiro Agnew is the worst name in American politics ever, and maybe also one of the worst humans uh, as well. Uh, and we had a President Millard Fillmore once, so that's saying something as far as names go. Uh, Reed is trying to calm the government down to avoid a war, and the Human Torch unsurprisingly rushes off to confront Namor by himself. But Reed slows him down a little bit by just extending his arm out the window and grabbing him and Torch is like, I better flame off or I'm going to burn my brother-in-law. Uh, anyway, 
Uh, Reed then tells Sue she needs to get Franklin to Whisper Hill. That's where Agatha Harkness lives with her weird cat. And maybe, you know, she can watch him for a while. And then on page five, Richard Nixon actually shows up. Now, Richard Nixon, unsurprisingly, (laughs) Marvel has a policy when it comes to the United States presidents in more modern years. Well, they'll kind of show them in shadow because of the sliding time scale. It's always tricky for them to show an actual president on the page. But Nixon in this era shows up in the comics like 30 different times. There's also a story where a scroll replaces Richard Nixon in a comic book, which is also fun. Uh, Anyway, thinking really. Yeah, (laughs) if only. (laughs) But Nixon is actually in this book. He tells the thing to shut up and he agrees to let the FF try to stop Namor. Uh, I'll have my military ready in case you fail, he says with, I don't know, some sort of finger quotes in the air, because that's all I know about Nixon. And uh, Johnny leaves Crystal behind to watch uh, the communications because they don't want any girls in danger, you know. Uh, okay. Nixon is also loosely referenced in the infamous Captain America story where the president uh, is evil and part of the secret empire and like commits suicide at the end, which is a Watergate reference. And this is why Cap like gives up on his country and becomes nomad, but it's never directly stated to be Nixon. But in the Marvel universe, that's my head canon about what happened to this guy. Uh, I covered that pretty quickly. Do you guys have comments on the first five pages? I love Nixon contrasting didn't... the, the parenting styles of, uh, of the Richards as compared to the Summerses, where it's like, yeah. let's take the baby off to live with, you know, his witchy aunt for a while instead of just put him in a force bubble and take him into the fight with us. <laughs> yeah. Or just send him into the future. Yeah. Or there's that there's that Jack Monroe version of Bucky that just like strapped or nomad, I mean that just strapped the baby to his chest and like took her into combat. <laughs> See, talking about Richard Nixon and his apparent death in the comics, he didn't die. He got a robot body and is now in Futurama. Uh, yes, he has a he's had seen him unpaneled immediately. I hear the Futurama voice. Yeah, that's <laughs> entirely fair. If you, guys, if you guys look at page two with me, what's worse, Magneto's costume or Namor's eyebrows? Oh, definitely the costume. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to describe this version of Magneto's costume? He's in yeah, his, I mean, it's, uh, it's the classic his gun holster era. Yeah, he's got like these tubes connecting his cape or backpack, or he's he's basically got this support exoskeleton that is still matching the traditional like purple and red, but it's it just looks like a a spare costume that he was never meant to wear. Uh, th- he wore this all through the Hidden Years. And by the way, yeah. for my listeners who covered the Hidden Years with me, Professor X is astrally floating around in this issue a little bit because it crossed yeah. over with that John Byrne series. But we don't have to bring that up here because we covered it in the Hidden Years content. Uh, Jeremy, do you want to take us through the next section of the book? Tell us what happens. Sure. Uh, <laughs> it, this, is a, this is a book, I think, where... Uh, Nothing happens, and then everything happens for a while. <laughs> um, like Magneto decides to like take over Namor's ship because Namor isn't listening to him yell enough. Um, so he just starts uh, using his magnetism to do Silver Age things uh, because in in the Silver Age, magnetism can do anything. Um, he gets Namor to take off and go fight the Fantastic Four by. Uh, pretend by shooting a missile at them and then making Namor think that they've shot at him. Um, <laughs> very, like, very overly complicated. Um, and then, like, of course, they they managed to zap Namor out of the air and so naturally Ben immediately jumps off of the flying Fantasticar and is like, I'm gonna go fight him in the water. Try and fucking stop me. <laughs> Which is the worst place to fight the Submariner. Like, yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> I, I'm the thing. I'll fight anywhere, anytime. <laughs> I actually prefer to lose, really. Um, it motivates me. Um, and then Sue Sue takes the baby to uh, to Agatha's place and literally just hands the baby off. This is unimportant to the rest of the story, except for that it causes Sue to come in later in a different vehicle and get uh, have it disassembled in midair by Magneto so that she can pass out and be captured like a, like a good Silver Age woman. When uh, when Magneto convinces uh, the thing to fight the FF, here's his inner dialogue in the ship as he takes over the Atlantean army, uh, which is kind of impressive because he just zaps all the soldiers. But he goes, it worked. The die is finally cast. Now to take over the entire flagship, all that is needed is one simple magnetic blast to pin the crew's armor against the steel walls. I also love, uh, there's a, a page just before this where Sue's saying goodbye. She's hugging Reed. <laughs> she goes, Reed, darling. When, we, when will, be, that was my when favorite will we ever be able to have a peaceful life? And he goes, maybe never, my love, but at least we have each other. And if I was Sue, I'd be like, yeah, that's not enough for me. <laughs> I gotta go. What I love You're is not that, that charming. Magneto, in that Magneto inner monologue, everything is inner monologue except the last line. And so basically he's just sitting there pointing his arms around, zapping people, and then just yells, and so the chip is mine! (laughs) I hope you've been tapped into my thoughts, because this would make no sense otherwise. But here's the only redeeming thing about 60s Magneto. As he takes over the ship and the army, he he says, Magneto now holds command, just as it is Magneto and his mutants who will one day rule the world. So there's the one line you need to make Magneto relatable, because we all do the Magneto was right thing. His motivation yeah. somehow is like, if I can drive the world to war and or seize these resources, then I'll make a safe place for mutants eventually. Uh, it also seems like he's wearing a smaller size helmet than usual. Like his <laughs> face is really bursting out of that one, especially in that monologue lower left panel. I uh, I commented on this in the last episode, but uh, I know a lot of artists will take screenshots of themselves or others to like capture facial expressions for them to draw. And I'm just picturing these artists making these Magneto faces in like yeah. selfies, like <laughs> growl. <laughs> just looking at Magneto's outfit here, it looks like it's made out of um, what the '80s tracksuits are made out of. You know that oh, swishy yeah. material. <laughs> uh, Jeremy, I have to Scarlet ask Spider would have looked like had he been around in the '70s. Just you know. <laughs> Uh, Jeremy, I have to ask you quickly. You say you are the thing. Uh, what makes you the thing? What do you and the thing have in common? Uh, I, I relate strongly to the um, Ben. is is not he's strong, but he's not the strongest. He's he's not the smartest. He's not the best at anything. He's just too dumb and ugly to quit. That's uh, like you know he he literally says that or that or some version of that several times. I'm just like I'm just too dumb and ugly to give up. He had a cold in the last issue. Now he's jumping in the ocean. It's not going to end well. Uh, I would also love to hear your thoughts on, uh, if we go to page 11 quickly, where Justin's going to start, How your thoughts on how uh, Agatha Harkness is drawn versus how baby Franklin is drawn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's funny that like in that second, in the second panel, baby Franklin looks a little bit like a baby. And then he gets passed to Agnes and immediately becomes a Renaissance baby. He's like very gassy in that third <laughs> holding up the you know the three fingers like a Jesus in an old Renaissance painting. Um, he's not I, John Reed is not the worst at drawing babies that I've seen. There are a lot of like even '90s and 2000s artists that are like, yeah, I can draw all the 800 muscles that are on this dude. And then you like, draw a baby, and they're like, 
man but small <laughs> like a freak of nature. just birthed man uh what's interesting <laughs> about that man was very small <laughs> what's funny about that harkness exchange is that sue seems surprised that agatha harkness knows that she's in the fantastic four <laughs> you, you know when she mentioned she's going to go rejoin her husband i mean she's landed in her front lawn in a fantastic car <laughs> and is wearing her fantastic four uniform and uh there just doesn't you know as a parent you want to know a lot about the person watching your kid. There does not seem to be a lot of information being shared here. She's just dropping him off and hoping for the best. This being an X-Men show, we won't get to a lot of Agatha Harkness, but it was Agatha all along. We do love we do love <laughs> Agatha Harkness on this channel. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, Jeremy talking about relating to the thing, reading Agatha's description here, I relate to her the most this issue. Um, being a recluse with her black cat. <laughs> <laughs> and like a blanket around her. Yeah, I, I'm giving in my personal life, I'm giving off severe Agatha Harkness old lady energy. I, I get it. <laughs> uh Justin, will you take us through the next few pages? Tell us what happens. Oh, Justin's lifted up yes. black cat. <laughs> <laughs> that was good timing, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> so Sue arrives at um Agatha's place with her cat kind of hissing and hunched back. Um and Agatha talks about, you know, being cautious, which is why Sue is leaving Franklin with her. Um, Sue looks away dramatically, looking like the famous pop art comic painting. Um, the, I believe it's um, Crying Girl. I had to Google who painted it, Roy Lichtenstein, but very that. <laughs> um, after Sue flies away, Magneto takes Invisible Woman hostage in a moment of vulnerability while she is crying. What a rare stroke of luck! I found myself the perfect hostage, he says. <laughs> she just happens to be flying by Magneto, you know. <laughs> um, and while she does protect herself with the force field as her ship is taken control of and lowered gently into the ocean, not crash landing, um, before it's brought to Magneto directly, um, Magneto pulls her from the ship and she is unconscious. So I do love this thing where artists will draw Namor's like army ships, like in fish or crab form all the time. It's like a fish. Even ship. the ships look like fish. I think it's great. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, Magneto pulls unconscious invisible woman out of the ship. Um, she has pulled a Jean Grey and fainted. Just because, um, again, she got placed gently into the ocean. Only she had found some way to come in without being seen. She had some <laughs> way to not be seen. If only she had a way to shield herself with her mind. <laughs> and she wouldn't have passed out. It's 1970s. The girls didn't, didn't get to do stuff yet. Yeah. <laughs> so um, after Invisible Woman is pulled from her ship. <clears throat> excuse me. Um, Mr. Fantastic or Reed and Johnny notice a water spout forming in the ocean. Um, this is caused this is, by Thing. This is my favorite. <laughs> so this <laughs> this water spout is caused by Thing in the ocean spinning around really fast to create a whirlpool to pull Namor in. It's so um, stupid. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the fact that Namor gets pulled in to begin with when, you know, he lives in the ocean, but go off. <laughs> Um, Thing tries to punch Namor, but Namor, of course, mocks Ben and dodges him for trying to attack him in his own domain, the ocean, where he is supreme. Um, Namor says he will not be humbled by the Thing, but will humble him and the human race. 
Um, what I noticed throughout this um, whole interaction is Ben is thinking, like they're all thought bubbles, whereas Namor is speaking. So again, we just have Namor randomly shouting while Ben is internally monologuing. Well, Namor's <laughs> able to talk underwater. Thing can't. So that's actually smart editorial there. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 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 Alex, do you want to take us through the, the end of the book? Tell us what happens. Sure. So Namor and, and Thing are, are squaring off underwater and Namor just says, you know, get out of my face and tosses him into some rocks and basically says, I don't care if he dies. He'll, he'll figure it out. He's the thing. He comes up to the surface and realizes his flagship is gone. Um, and as he comes out, the torch and Mr. Fantastic engage with him. The torch comes at him pretty, pretty directly as, as Mr. Fantastic, uh, tries to find Ben. He's, he's literally just dipping his arm into the water, trying to, <laughs> Find Ben like a fork lost in the sink while you're washing your dishes. Um, and this is this find- is an example of what Jeremy said earlier, where like the over narration, uh, the 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 fire hits the water, and Namor goes a flame burst from above, turning the sea to fi- to fiery steam. Like we could have just seen the fire; it was enough. Yeah, like clearly, like standing <laughs> overdrive, like just 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 let the art do the talking a little bit. Um, and then uh, as Namor Namor starts to uh, torch notices that Namor's trying to get away, and uh, Namor locates the ship, the flagship, and they all converge on the ship with the FF, basically trying to engage with Namor. Until this is my favorite part when they when Namor just mentions Magneto, and everyone's like, "Huh, Magneto? What's Magneto doing here?" And they basically realize that they've all been kind of hoodwinked, uh, Namor in particular, and. Uh, they get into the ship, and Namor's crew points them to this big TV screen where Magneto has Sue Storm and Lady Dorma held hostage and is, what does he say? He says, greetings, defeated ones. This is why none of you will lift a finger against me. And he basically wants them to serve him in his efforts to take over the world, or he will destroy uh, you know, Reed's beloved and Namor's beloved. Uh, and then we have a very sad, somber shot of uh, Namor and Mr. Fantastic looking out on the water. And next, the dread decision. We have to give a little bit of notice to the things dialogue when Reed pulls him out of the water. He goes, yeah. uh, hey, hey, what the? who's the wise guy? Who's the wise guy? And then uh, <laughs> they said, you're all right, Benny. He goes, the heck I am. I swallowed a snoot full of guppies. I love the way it's so fun uh delicious what uh what are your thoughts on this issue as a whole you guys of course it continues into ff 104 which we'll cover on the next show i love when they try to draw namor with any sort of like expression other than angry because they still just draw his eyebrows the same way so it's just like namor is smiling and his eyebrows are just you know giant uh ends on his face I'm not angry. It's like every emotion plus angry. Yeah. (laughs) Angry is the base emotion. So even if he's happy. happy? Yeah. (laughs) I love you. What? (laughs) Uh, Magneto, if you take all of his appearances in the 60s together, his early brotherhood stuff is what Jam De Mateus is exploring in the Magneto series now. And it's really interesting. But ever since the stranger pulled him to another planet at X-Men 11, he's been fucking crazy. Like grasping at straws, creating like crazy people, like races of like mutates. Uh, This man is not well. He needs a nap. (laughs) I think there's definitely, I mean, you get a little bit of a precursor to what Claremont sets up for him in the Roy Thomas, Neil Adams stuff. I mean, he gets a little bit more complexity and depth in that classic run but after that he just becomes a you know a scene chewing a silver age baddie until 
you know, the new X-Men show up. Yeah, you could replace him with the Mandarin or Doctor Doom or Doctor Mesmero. It's the same character or Mesmero. Yeah. <laughs> Who argued? I thought this was worst costume. <laughs> yeah. No, I thought this issue was you know pretty solid. Silver Age fair, great art, really fun dialogue, uh, a bunch of cheesy moments. But I mean, this is why we love comics. Uh, Jeremy, any final thoughts? Nuts! Let him keep yakking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Namor just wow, leaving I'm the thing in the water. <laughs> I love Ben. He's the best. He really is delightful. And he's being written so well in the modern comics as well by Ryan North. It's so much mm-hmm. fun. Uh, this is a beloved character by nearly everybody. I think Spider-Man or the thing is like everyone's favorite character in a lot of ways. Uh uh, Justin, any final thoughts here? It was an entertaining issue. It X-Men adjacent in that Magneto caused a war, but he gets more uh, more room to shine in the next issue. So this is where I get to announce in the next episode of the show, it will be covering uh, Fantastic Four number 104 with the incredible all-star uh, panel of Jay Holtham, Sean Damian Hill, and Stephanie Williams. Uh, and I'm so excited to, uh, to meet uh, Jay and Sean for the first time. It's going to be delightful to wrap this ridiculous story up with, uh, with them. Uh, it has been so fun hanging out with each of you tonight. I hope you had a great time thank you for sharing your time and your talents thanks for uh, having we're getting uh, my absolute pleasure uh we're we're getting ready to wrap up shortly i'd love to hear any final or concluding thoughts that you have uh and i would love to hear what we can look forward to uh, from each of you uh jeremy uh, let me have you go first here and this is a question i wanted to ask you as well have you been affected by the writer's strike and how are you doing uh so as you're kind of doing your outro let us know where we can find you online what you've got going on in your life right now uh yeah i'm i'm not uh officially wga i haven't written anything that qualifies as that yet so not really affected by the writer's strike other than uh it's affecting my ability to try to get in that direction because i've been like <laughs> let me try and do some some screenplay work and then they were like that's not happening anymore screenplays are canceled uh and i was like all right i guess i'm gonna keep doing comics then um but uh, as far as what I've got going on, uh, so Dog Night came out in May. Uh, I currently have a uh, My Little Pony uh, mini series that's coming out called The Unicorn of Odd, which is a retelling of The Wizard of Oz with the cast of Friendship is Magic, um, which is a lot of fun. If you like uh, weird meta stuff, it, it goes goes kind of hard in the paint on that. Um, and then uh, in November, I have my... Uh, we have the second volume of School for Extraterrestrial Girls, which I do with my friend Jamie Noguchi. Uh, it's coming out from Paper Cuts. Um, in February, I have my first uh, real real grown-up R-rated comic coming out. Uh, it's called The Cold Ever After. It's coming out from Titan. I describe it to people as a queer Arthurian noir. Um, and it's, uh, it's a lot of fun. It's got, you know, uh, much more sex and violence than most of my comics. Um, all the all the fun stuff and then uh we're we're working on volume two of uh dog night for next year and they actually just recently announced uh my book that i'm co-writing with my uh podcast co-host and friend um ben Kahn, uh called the dashing school for wayward princes which is a uh a, a book about a, a group of princes who get sent to a uh a school that teaches them toxic masculinity so they can be better princes um and then sort of bonding together to rebel against that and try and try and make their way through. Um, so those are all the the things I have coming out. And then, as I mentioned, I have uh, my own podcast, Progressively Horrified, 
which I do with my friends uh, Ben and Emily, which is uh, where every every week we watch a uh, scary movie and then talk about the progressive politics that it may or may not have ever wanted to have in it. Um, so we, we discuss a lot of, you know, queer horror and uh, horror from around the world or from black directors, things like that. Um, and we have guests on that all the time, too. So we're actually getting ready as I as I talk to you guys tomorrow to record an episode about the original uh, Black Christmas, where we'll be talking to Matt Fraction about that for for uh, I think it'll be coming out right around November or right around Thanksgiving. Fantastic, man. It's such an honor to meet you. I hope it, I hope I've conveyed that I'm a huge fan. Uh, my children are also huge fans. It's a, it's just a joy to have you on the show. Thank you. Uh, I'm going to take this to a real dirty place for a second. And I do not know the comedian to, to, to credit here, but this is the hardest I've laughed in a year. I heard a comedy routine who talked about the, uh, the, my little pony characters. And she said it, she realized one day that all of their names are lesbian sex positions. And then she goes, rainbow dash, twilight sparkle, Pinkie Pie, and I laughed my ass off. <laughs> it's a weird place to take it. I did not come up with that joke, but it makes me smile very hard. <laughs> I mean, I believe, I believe, and for Applejack especially, and that, that sounds <laughs> that sounds right. Uh, just ridiculous. Uh, thank you again for coming on, my friend. Uh, Alex, let's uh, let's hear from you. Yeah. Uh, thanks again for having me. This was a lot of fun, Jeremy. Good to chat with you and Absolutely. hang out. Um, and Justin as well. Sorry, <laughs> I mean I wasn't trying to slight you. I'm like ha- losing sleep. Um, uh, next week, I think, or in the uh, oh, well, in October, uh, I have a story in Marvel Zombies: uh, Black, White, and Blood, a Spider-Man story drawn by Javi Fernandez, which uh, I'm just kind of pitch- I pitched as the darkest day of Peter Parker's life. As a lifelong Spider-Man fan, it was a real thrill to write that. Um, what do I have? I, they just announced that I'm taking over a new Dick Tracy series for Mad Cave with Mike Moracy and Geraldo Borges on art, who did Thunderbolts and No One for Image. Um, I totally it, forgot. I saw that headline and I forgot. I'm weirdly nostalgic for Dick Tracy. I'm really excited. To yeah, it. no, I love that movie as a kid and obviously the Chester Gould stuff. Uh, but that, that movie was what pulled me in, you know, right after Batman. Dick Tracy was like the next big franchise film uh, for me as a kid. And um we're doing, if you read Secret Identity and you like the interstitial comic book sequences, we're doing them mm-hmm. as full comic issues, kind of with the meta twist that Sandy and I are remastering and, and uh, re-releasing these lost issues of Triumph Comics. So that'll be coming out through Image as the Legendary Links 1 through 4 at the beginning of the year. Um, what else am I doing? I've got something coming up for DC that hasn't been announced yet that I'm excited about, and a few other things for Marvel. You know, fingers crossed. And Alter Ego, the sequel to Secret Identity, is coming out late next year. And I also have a, a sci-fi novel coming out uh, at some point next year. So, damn, you're busy, busy. my friend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah tell me about it. It's good. No I'm, complaints. Uh, I'm so excited for everything you have coming out. I'm looking forward to Dick Tracy. And uh, oh, thanks. I will watch the previews for upcoming announcements as well. Uh, And then lastly, Justin, where can people find you? And I'd love to hear about any cosplays you have coming up. Yes. So thank you for having me. And um, I'm glad I got to meet Jeremy and Alex as well and get familiar with your work. So, you know, glad we got to discuss that. Um, So I can be found mostly on Instagram under the name J underscore cosmic. That's spelled with a K. I'm also on Twitter, but I don't really post there. I'm a little inconsistent with the platforms, not going to lie. I'm mostly on Instagram. But um, currently, um, as re- as we record, 
I am doing a 31 days of cosplay for October leading up to Halloween. So by the time this comes out, it'll be complete. But um, yeah, I'm really excited for that. That's a fun challenge. Uh, Justin released an image of doing the Circus of Crime member Bruno the Strongman today cosplay, which was a deep dig and I was happy to see wow. it. Uh, it's great to see all three of you. Thank you again for the gift of your time and talents. Uh, I've already plugged what's coming next on Grey Malkin Lane, so I'll just say uh, you just watch for what we have coming out. Uh, I will preemptively announce later in November we are doing the trial of uh, Shiro Yoshida or Sunfire on my show. Uh, and it's going to be an all-star cast of jury members. It's going to be a great time. Uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. Uh, thank you so much to Justin, Alex, and Jeremy for coming on the show today. We will see you back here next time on Grey Malkin Lane. All right, everybody, we are so excited to be visiting the second script from the further adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix uh, with uh, with my friends from the Smut Crew. That's our official title from here forward. Yeah. <laughs> this is uh, a uh, number two from July 1996 by Peter Milligan, John Paulian. Uh, inkers are Klaus Jansen and Char Sean Martinbro. Uh, Kevin Summers on colors and Mark Powers on edits. This episode is entitled Unnatural Selection. Uh, I am Chad and I will be your narrator. I am Justin and I will be Nathaniel Essex. I'm Alicia and I will be Rebecca Essex. I am Steve and I will be Cyclops. I'm Zamanda Martini and I will be giving you Madam Sanctity, Daniel, Oscar, and various others. <laughs> And I'm Arturo. I'm going to be giving you Apocalypse and Man. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Sarah Century, and I'm Jean Grey. <laughs> I uh, I texted Steve earlier and said, have you been practicing your earnest voice for Cyclops? <laughs> <laughs> okay, here we Jean! go. On the back cover, it says 1859. All that stands between the mutant High Lord Apocalypse and a world unprepared for his genetic holocaust are Scott Summers and Jean Grey, the X-Men known as Cyclops and Phoenix. Time lost and alone, their only hope may be an obsessed scientist whose theories have made him an outcast. But as Nathaniel Essex edges inexorably toward self-destruction, he has also drawn the attention of Apocalypse, who seeks to form an unholy alliance with him, one which could condemn the planet to millennia of untold death and suffering. Pages one and two. Beneath the gaslit streets of 19th century London, a stranger has appeared, a time-lost champion for the downtrodden, the different, and the weak, just the kind of poor and twisted creatures who now attack him. Take me back to dear old Blight. Oldham, he must be one of Cootie's boyos. How can they know that this man, Scott Summers, the mutant known as Cyclops, is their friend? They are merely the latest products of the great industrial revolution. Human pig iron blasted in a furnace of, of pain, fear, and suffering. Is this hell, he thinks, as another bony limb smashes into his face? One minute, he's in 20th century Salem Center, New York, with Jean, his wife and fellow X-Men. But now, snatched back in time by the mythic clan of telepaths called the Ascani, he finds he is a freak among freaks. But even as the tortured souls try to smother him, he wills his mind to clear, his fighting instinct to kick in. For the moment, deprived of his ruby quartz visor, the only thing capable of holding in check his explosive optic blast, he is effectively blind. But in this close, dark bedlam, temporary blindness is no great hand can't no great handicap. Stay away. I don't want to hurt you. What is this place? 
don't listen. He's a marauder. Why don't he open his eyes? Maybe he's one of us. Cyclops fires his optic blast. I didn't want to have to do this. He's got fire in his eyes. Why is he? At least I got a picture of where I am. Should discourage them for a while. Looks and smells like I'm in some kind of a sewer. But if I'm here, where's Jean? That devil's bottle murderer of a lot of us. Can't live into panic, but call out to Jean with my mind through our psionic rapport. Jean, Jean, where are you? Can you hear me? Pages three and four. In Westminster Abbey, Jean is wrapped in a blue cloak and disoriented. Scott? Scott? No use. His thoughts, so weak, confused, and in pain. Where is this? Yes, Westminster Abbey, and I'd say by the dress and accents, I'm at least a century in the past. But how? And why? That'll have to wait. Scott's here too, and he's in trouble. I've got to find him. She just fell from the sky like an angel. Lady, madam, are you all right? Where are you going? I'm quite well, father. Outside, the world seems to slow down and passersby become Victorian mannequins on a frozen film set. Only Jean Grey, the X-Man called Phoenix, sees reality's dominion usurped. A woman floats before Jean in green energy as time stops around them. Who are you? Jean Grey, guardian of he who shall deliver us. I am Sanctity, last of the Ascani Sisterhood, burdened with guarding the timeline. It is I who have humbly brought you and Dayspring's father to this age. You are charged with an awesome duty. If you do not save this present, then the future is damned. Look at this world, milady, a world of gas and steam, of clumsy machines and crude science. Would there be anyone in this world able to withstand the power of the evil one? The evil one? You mean apocalypse? As it always to be, O lady of goodness. The past, present, and future are as one. But even we Ascani, though able to travel along the spokes of the ages, cannot stand outside the wheel wheel of time. time. Okay, sorry. (laughs) Meaning, you see only a fragment of the big picture? Yes, but the ancient text speaks of a place called Milbury House, where the forking paths of destiny meet and where you will find a man. A man called Essex. A man whose soul will be the battleground on which the fate of the future will be decided. We can maintain your physical forms for a limited time in this age, O lady. You have just 48 hours to find Essex and stop the rise of apocalypse. All our futures, everything you have known, lives or dies in these two days. Without warning, the sister of the Ascani vanishes, and Jean Grey is alone. Alone with a final fleeting psychic image of her dear Scott. Using her awesome telepathic power, she reaches out for him. Pages 5 through 7. Even as in Milbury House, Rebecca Essex tries to reach out for her own husband, while an uninvited guest, 
the ancient despot known to time as Apocalypse looks on. Nathaniel, don't you see what you did was evil? Evil, wicked, and, and insane. You do not understand me, woman. And I pray I never will. By God, if you think I, I enjoyed working on the body of our dead son, if you think my actions indicate a lack of grief, then you do me a disservice. Don't you see, Rebecca? I am, I am a pioneer, a scientific explorer. Just as Livingstone explores the uncharted regions of the Dark Continent, so do I explore that darker continent that is our species' future. No, Nathaniel, that won't do. These are excuses, not reasons. At first, your work was for the benefit of mankind. Now, mankind, and even your own family, is there for the benefit of your work. No amount of genius gives you the right to play God. A sudden, shocking pain erupts from her heavy womb. Oh, dear Lord, I swear, you will be the ruin of us all. If you are such a genius, why can you not make this pain abate? Rebecca, you must rest. It serves no purpose to become so agitated. I will do anything in my power to stop your suffering. Anything. There is one thing. Speak it. Are you willing to abandon the mad excess to which your work is taking you? Please give that up for the sake of me and your unborn child. Rebecca, I... I... You hesitate too long, sir. Peter denied our saviour thrice before the cock crowed. Do not expect such patience from me. Rebecca, please. Let her be. If you are a genius, as you say, you must learn to ally intellect with strength. Tell me of the man called Darwin, whose theories of survival of the fittest mirror my own, and how you arrived at your own conclusions. Then, thinking. For it is no coincidence that led me to this house or you, but another sign that the time of my ascendancy has arrived. No, sir, I think not. I don't know who you are or from which end of German street you procure your outlandish garb, but please leave my home. My name is N. Saba Nur. I would be of use to you and you to me. There is something in this stranger's eyes, an intensity, a power, hidden knowledge. And now that Essex has been branded an outcast by his peers, he could use some powerful allies. Very, very well. I sh will show you my work, though I warn you, you might find it shocking. Oh, I doubt that. As Nathaniel Essex turns to leave the room, something stops him. He looks at the door through which Rebecca left. A voice seems to say, there is still time, man. There is still time to go after her. And then another, more ancient voice. Come along, Essex. The future awaits us. They enter his lab, filled with cadavers and experiments, as well as some of the freaks from the sewers and cages. Some of the marauders are lounging about. Essex displays human skulls gathered from different eras of human history. Three skulls. Three signposts on evolution's journey. A journey that has taken millions of years. I hope you have seen from this tour of my laboratory that next stop on this journey, the greatest step of all is up almost upon us. These freaks are but nature's failed experiments, human sediment caked 
on the test tubes of progress. Unfortunately, I doubt I will live to see the great mutation when men will evolve into beings like unto gods. Apocalypse thinking. Incredible. At long last, after two millennia, I know what I am. I am an anomaly, the firstborn of this great mutation, the first and mightiest of a super race who will follow me. I am afraid that time grows short, sir. I have a meeting with some men who are also concerned in shaping the planet's future. Powerful men, rich men, my last chance of support, now that I have been condemned by the Royal Society. I would like to meet these powerful men. Well, I'm not sure. What makes a man powerful is my own area of study. I suppose it can't do any harm. You may have heard of these men. They call themselves the Hellfire Club. But do not be fooled. The famed house of lust and decadence is but a smokescreen for their real work. Pages 8 and 9. London. She's come to the highest point of Westminster Abbey, the better to search with her mind for Scott. Jean, thinking. Why us, Sanctity? Haven't we given enough? Have our sacrifices in the present meant so little that we have to travel into the past to set things right? This place is, in its own way, as alien as the future the Ascani pulled us into. But the love that Scott and I share was enough to pull us through then, and through the ages, no matter where we are. It always will be. Beneath those same streets, Cyclops thinking. Backing off. But for how long? Got to find out what this place is. Got to get in touch with... Scott? Jean! I was just... Thinking of me? I know. (laughs) Sorry, that's not in the script, but Jean just cracks me up. Are you all right? I had such a feeling of, of confusion, darkness. Don't worry about me. I'm fine. In some kind of sewer. Even got a little company. I just wish I knew what was happening. Across the static of Victorian consciousness, she tells him all she knows. Only 48 hours, Scott. If we do not succeed in stopping him, Apocalypse will rule this world. By the time we're born, the planet will have been his for over a hundred years. But first, we need to be together. Our combined mutant powers. It has to wait, Jean. Follow the lead that Sanctity gave you. I want to find out what's going on down here. If we know the Ascani, it wasn't a complete fluke that I ended up in this hole. She is naked beneath that coat. Is this true, child? You entered the house of God in a state of... of shame. Father, please, I don't have time for this. I have to find a place called Millberry House. Millberry? God help me. I have, madam. A place where the devil's work is done and the devil's own ideas are propagated. The owner is a man more ungodly than Darwin himself. Soon, traveling south from London, she's sorry that the cabbie will get no fare for his night's work, nor have any memory of his journey. But if he knew the threat apocalypse posed his world, he would not quibble over this free ride. Eventually, the brooding facade of the isolated estate comes into view. She shivers as she approaches its baleful countenance. The entire house seems to emit a sense of rottenness, of evil, of grief. She finds herself thinking of young Nathan Dayspring Summers, the man who grew up to be Cable, 
the terrible decision Scott had to make to send him into the future, into the arms of the Ascani, and where she and Scott eventually traveled to raise him. She feels more acutely than she can explain a parent's grief at losing a child. Pages 10 and 11, as Rebecca Essex lowers the corpse of her dead son back into her trouble, his troubled grave, she whispers the words of a prayer to a god she's only just managing to believe still exists. As if in a dream, she sees a woman approaching, a beautiful woman walking gracefully between the moss-covered headstones. This is private property. What do you want? She finds the words hard to articulate. The dead child, the tiny coffin, the stifling air of suffering. Jean is now dressed in a black and yellow ragged dress with a blue coat. I, I'm trying to find my husband. How amusing, seeing as I seem to be in the very process of losing mine. That's funny, is it not? Don't you find that funny? No, and I don't think you do either. I don't know what's going on here, and I don't mean to intrude on your sorrow, but I'm here as a matter of vital importance, and I have been informed that a Mr. Essex might be able to help me. Then God, if such a cruel creature exists, then God help you, for I do believe that Mr. Essex cannot even help himself. Oh, dear Lord, forgive me, but what am I to do? He is not a bad man. The death of our son, it, it turned him, poisoned him. He was a scientist, a genius, and yet he could not save his boy. I think I have an idea of what you're going through. How could you? My own husband suffered in a similar way. Nathaniel tried to work his pain away, but instead became obsessed, even wicked. But was that his fault? We are only flesh and blood. Bend us with enough force, and do we not become twisted? As Rebecca cries out her anguish, Jean is drawn toward the strange-looking annex to Milbury House. Where are you going? We must not go near that place. Wait! I don't have time for explanations, Rebecca. I've got to know why I've been <laughs> I've got to know why I've been sent here. As the at the threshold of the annex, Jean Grey trembles with a premonition. Please, lady, we must not enter. Courage, Rebecca. These poor people. What is your husband doing to them? It is his work. Work? This isn't work. This is evil, pure and simple. Jean sees a man in a cage and thinks, "Who's this boy?" He seems to be reaching out for me. And says, I see you are mute, but please allow me into your mind. Let us speak in that language beyond words. Jean telepathically enters Danny's mind. What's your name? Don't be afraid. Here you can speak. I, I, my name is Daniel. Are you like them? Like the bad man? No, Daniel, I'm not. Show me. Show me what they look like. Yes, that's him. The one called Essex. And obviously in disguise. Apocalypse. But Daniel, where'd they go? You must not go there, miss. Th those men... Daniel, please, you must tell me. They went to a place called the Hellfire Club. Wh where are you going? I have work to do. And so have you if you're willing to help me. Pages 13 through 15. Meanwhile. 
I'm not going to hurt you, but I need your help. Ain't no help here. He's one of the marauders. No, he's just a freak like us. You better get used to this place, freak. It's where we belong. Listen, wooden cages, iron bars, concrete walls. They might imprison you, but they don't make you a prisoner. It's what's inside you that does that. Cyclops bursts through the bars of a cage with another optic blast. Look, you can escape. I'll help you, but I need help in return. I need someone to be my eyes. But the freaks stare numbly at the broken bars as though the only thing they fear more than captivity is freedom. A group of armed marauders enter and a gunshot hits Cyclops in the shoulder. He fires an optic blast back. That moment. What's all this racket? You look at the bars. Oh, that's bloke. Shoot him, Oscar. The mechanism is rude, the barrel warped, but lead is lead and pain, pain. Simultaneously, through her psionic rapport, Jean Grey feels a sympathetic explosion of heat in her arm, and the shared pain is a kind of telepathic bridge. Scott? Flesh wound. Nothing to worry about. I'm trying to fire over their heads, scare them off. Any news on Apocalypse? I think so. I'm going to the Hellfire Club in London. The Hellfire Club? You wouldn't believe the horrors I've seen today, Scott. This man, Nathaniel Essex, there's something... Scott? Cyclops thinking. Asked. All alone. I didn't want to have to fight these guys. Okay, blind boy. Now you get a slap. Not this time, Marauder. Please, the freaks are fighting back. Ain't possible. Too many of them. Within seconds, the marauders are fleeing, but one of them slips, falls, and waits for certain death. Kill them. Kill the marauder. Wait. It's Oscar Get off him. It's Oscar Stamp. He ain't as bad as the others. Don't, Don't let him hurt me, please. Shut up and listen. You know where the Hellfire Club is? I... It's... I suppose I do. You can fill me in on what's happening down here on the way. Uh, who... Who are you, mister? Just a freak, Oscar. Just a freak. Who's fighting back. He's so corny. <laughs> 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 uh, pages 16 and 17. The Hellfire Club, where Ensabanur finishes outlining his vision of the future to the gathering of the rich, powerful, and incredulous men, including a Mr. Shaw and a Mr. Braddock. Apocalypse addresses the crowd of upper-class British men in suits. And from the ashes of this global upheaval, the strong shall rise. The feebler specimens of humanity will be either destroyed or subjugated with none of the pitiful mercy shown at the moment. Mr. Essex will be my first prelate, helping to control the master race, whose destiny is nearly manifest. Nathaniel, thinking. My God, imagine being able to conduct my experiments on such a scale. Imagine the progress that could be made unshackled by concerns of money or morality. Science for the sake of science. But but the turmoil he speaks of, so savage. So, inhuman. 
What place would there have been in such a world for my dear departed Adam? But wait, sir, do not dignify his rant with your intelligence. It is nothing but the deluded ramblings of a lunatic. Nathaniel speaks aloud. Lord Braddock, Mr. Shaw, gentlemen, in my desperation for your assistance, I allowed myself to believe this man was genuine. I apologize. <laughs> so you should, Essex. He's a buffoon. Says Shaw. We in the Hellfire Club have worked silently and effectively for years to achieve our aims. From what authority does this foreigner speak? Says Braddock. Authority? I will show you from what authority I speak. The room falls silent as an incredible metamorphosis takes place. Nathaniel thinks, He's changing before my eyes. They laughed at me, mocked my theories of the great mutation, but this, this is the living proof that I was right. I was right. And, and yet look at this creature. Look at this monster. Is this my bright, pure future? Apocalypse morphs before the men into a huge, blue, dangerous, monstrous form, all claws and sinews. Look upon the face of destruction, worms. Witness the true form of Apocalypse. Because you met in dark rooms, because you have money and influence, you consider yourselves strong. You are nothing but weak, complacent parasites. Once I knew a man who thought as you do. Full of pride, he thought his so-called royal blood gave him power. But for more than a thousand years, he has been my slave. And unless you serve me, you will have a most intimate knowledge of death. Know it is my custom to remove the eyes of those unfortunate enough to bear witness to my power. But the look of fear in yours tells me it is unnecessary. You will await my instructions. Come, Essex, I believe this meeting is concluded. And we'll talk about this later, but he's talking about Ozymandias in that speech. Pages 18 through 23. Nearby, a lonely embankment on the Thames, a rowing boat moors. Oscar Stamp rows Cyclops ashore. He's now dressed in a brown coat and hat with a blindfold around his eyes. He must be a demon, sir. He changed shape and done something to Cody and some of the others. Something unnatural. As he talked about the importance of being strong. Yes, sir. Do you know him then? You could say that. Are we near? If me contacts are right, they're meeting across the street from here. To tell the truth, I never liked picking on these freaks and mental cases. But Cootie said we had to change with the times and... Whoa, whoa! The boat hits the dock. Oscar! You. But, but how can a blind man do that? Well, you see, Oscar, I had a little help. Someone else is acting as my eyes now. Scott, are you all right? They have been plucked without warning from their own time. They are charged with an awesome duty. They are up against the most powerful and evil creature known to time. But for one brief stolen moment, as Jean telekinetically lowers herself into Scott's arms, they are just two people grateful to be reunited. This man, Essex, 
Apocalypse is using him somehow. I know. And he's recruited a small army. But as long as you and I stick together, they don't stand a chance. Ah, there they are! Running like frightened fishwives. That foreign-looking one with the funny at. He's the demon. Apocalypse. This is it, Jean? What was it Sanctity said? If we don't save the present, the future is damned. Look, sir, there's the other one I told you about, Nathaniel Essex. Well, I mean, who are you, sir? I am the future. But my theory suggests the mutation should occur, should not occur for several generations. I am above your theories. As a man with weak eyes cannot stare into the sun, so you, for all your genius, could not quite envision a being of my magnitude. Scott, do you see it? Yes. Essex is the man who nearly destroyed our life in the 20th century. Essex is sinister! Or will become sinister. Yes. Look at him, Jean. So weak. So human. It would be so easy. One optic blast would do it. In one instant, Sinister would be wiped from the history books. All the suffering he will cause. Eradicated. But can you kill a man for what he might become? Essex is still human, he thinks. Perhaps he can be stopped from becoming sinister. Perhaps that is what the Ascani intended all along. Scott Summers' deliberations are rudely interrupted by the marauders monstrously enhanced by Apocalypse's alien technology. Pale British skin and bone, shocked to steely apocalyptic warriors. I thought we only had Apocalypse to deal with. Cyclops blasts the enhanced marauders who are fighting him, and Oscar thinks, You better scoffer, Oscar, my lad. This ain't no place for a simple boy from the Mile End. Better get yourself back home and forget you ever clocked your eyes on this. My God, what now? That man and woman. It's not possible. How could my theories be so wrong? Such a being shouldn't be born for another century or so. Apocalypse transforms again. But see how they fight? Does your blood not roar? Do you not feel the fire in your belly? Life is but an ongoing test, Essex. And this is the one I have sought since times of old. My time is at hand. To the strong, the world. To the weak, death. Apocalypse launches himself into combat with Cyclops and Jean Grey. Long have I awaited another such as myself, stranger. Your might is truly glorious, but none may oppose me. Cyclops thinks. Incredible. He's taking the brunt of my optic blast, and it's barely holding him back. Scott, hold on. I'm... Vegeta's uh, 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 knocked out of the air by thrown wreckage. Scott thinks. Min, no. Our telepathic link is severed. She's unconscious. Sinking. She'll drown. Must use all my strength. Ah! Apocalypse smashes Cyclops into the ground. It is over. Whoever this creature is, he is a truly courageous opponent. But ultimately, he is not fit. And so he must be destroyed. You, 
You're going to kill him? No, I have a better idea. I shall give him to you, Nathaniel Essex. To, to me? What would I want with this strange being? Do you forget your religion so quickly, Essex? Until now, you have only worked in theory on pathetic freaks, dry bones, and dead fossils. Here is a living specimen of which you dreamed that you can dissect, examine, understand. Nathaniel thinks. Merciful God, the way this young man and that woman looked at each other, just as Rebecca and I used to look at each other. But how can I refuse? I have worked towards this my whole life. How do I not do as the monster says? There is a price, Essex. First, you must join me. You must allow me to release you from the stupid chains of weakness and morality that you still cling to. In return, I offer you the chance to follow your work to its end. Witness sights undreamed of. Usher in the new age you have foretold. I don't understand. I... Enough! You will give me your decision when the next sun sets. With that, the ageless conqueror and his minions are swallowed in a blinding flash, leaving a man alone to make a choice that will decide humanity's fate. Page 24. Essex wanders among the docks, lost in thought. Tomorrow. And then what? And what then? What new price will he exact? He is a brute who only wants my learning, but for his own ends. Who would happily destroy all knowledge if it served his precious drive towards power? But to have the means, the longevity, to pursue my work to the limit, do I not owe it to science itself to accept his offer? And what is to become of this world if he is the only guiding hand for this new race? Help. Hmm? Someone in the river? Miss, did you fall from the boat? You'll catch your death. How? Scott? Where's Scott? You? To be continued. Gene. <laughs> I'm just a freak. I'm just a freak, you guys. I'm just a freak who's fighting back. Who's fighting I, lo back? I love that. He's such a cornball. I <laughs> I'm just a freak who's fighting back. <laughs> what are our thoughts on uh, episode two? Uh, I don't know about you. I don't know about you all, but that whipped. That that was yeah, awesome. yeah, whipped. Really good way to go. That was the first awesome. one was great, but the escalation is severe. Yeah. Like that I got, was... I got lost in the character. <laughs> Apocalypse has such cool lines. Thank you, Art. Oh yeah, Peter Milligan knows how to write a evil monologue. That's for damn yeah, sure. For sure. I love, I love that Apocalypse like wakes up once every hundred years and like mutates somebody and then goes back to sleep. <laughs> he wakes up every hundred years just to remind everybody that Ozymandias sucks. <laughs> you guys all Shout see this guy, right? What a loser. <laughs> yeah, he's just been, he used to think he was big and strong and tough, but not now. I yeah, just... look at these vast and trunkless legs of stone over here. <laughs> I just yeah. love that Apocalypse is trash talking him. <laughs> I love that Jean is very much herself. Peter Milligan can write a good Jean. She's very self-righteous. I love all of the parts where she's like, why us, sanctity? Haven't we given enough? 
<laughs> just so yeah. good. I was like reading through this, just cracking up and being like, Jean, you are Jean. You are forever Jean. Everybody's trying to be like, hey, what's going on? And she's like, shut your mouth. I'm busy. That's <laughs> like, Jean, I was just thinking of you. And she's like, of course I you know. <laughs> That's, that was one of my favorite parts ever. When I know. Like, yeah, I, I know. I couldn't even say it like right. I mean, while I was like rehearsing with myself earlier, I was just dying. Like I cracked up every time I said that line. So let's start. I, I had Jean. a hard time getting are, through the. Oh, I'm sorry, sorry Steve. Go ahead. I, I had a hard time not laughing my way through the part when he's like, "Yeah, somebody else is my eyes right now." Because it's like, yeah, okay, that makes sense if like we understand your psychic rapport, but like that means nothing <laughs> to this guy you just pulled out yeah. of the water. There's a third blind. person here. <laughs> Let's talk about Jean in this issue first. Uh, <laughs> this is fresh off of their 12-year honeymoon in the future, raising their kid uh, era. So the parenting is still kind of acute. These two have been on a 12-year adventure 2,000 years in the future. What are your thoughts on Jean in this issue? Okay, well, if you're telling me that she had a 12-year break, then Jean, like, stop complaining that why is it always you? You just did nothing for 12 years. I mean, for, it 12, was a... for 12 years, she was in a house. <laughs> cable for 12 years. Clown, That's hard. Like, it was a very busy 12 years. I'm kidding. <laughs> I like that Gene like um, is hopefully, like I said, I still, I still haven't read any anything else, but I like that Gene is hopefully swaying Rebecca to, to uh, I don't know, go against Nathaniel's crazy. Jean immediately walks into this woman's life and is like, these things your husband are doing are evil, but I am good. It's, I don't uh, want to intrude on your sorrow because <laughs> I've got my own thing to deal with. Like also, everything she, Jean. As she's, she's like, I, and I gotta go. Like, I've got a Jean Grey problem going on right now. It's just no time. <laughs> she's like, this doesn't concern you. I have things to do here. Yeah. Like yeah. I, I have things to do. Your husband is evil. Like, d don't worry about it. I'm just going to do what I got to do. Yeah, and like, then she ends it with, like, yeah. a little guilt trip to, like, rope her in and use her as, like, a pawn. <laughs> yeah. Yes. On that, on that note, it's really great that, like, Jean immediately is like, no, I have to finish my thing. Cyclops' whole reaction is, I must have been put in the sewer for cosmic reasons. <laughs> like, there's, it can't be an accident that I'm here. I love it. Like, Logan was in a sewer. He goes, like, it feels... And smells like I'm in the sewer. <laughs> I could not figure out how to read that line at all. It feels he, and smells. He starts this smells. whole uprising. Like he's literally just like, we can band together. And then he's like, I kind of want to kill all of the people that anger me. And it's just like, this is foreshadowing. <laughs> like This man. I mean, to give Cyclops credit, if we look in his chronology, he just found out about Sinister and the whole Madeline Pryor crazy. He's got his baby and then Apocalypse steals it or, or like infects it. These are not his favorite people, right? <laughs> He's no. traumatized. Is this, is this the series? Is this the issue that confirmed that Nathaniel Essex was Mr. Sinister's real name? Yes. That's, that's so crazy to me. Oh, it's just like a thing I've always known yeah. my whole life. And it's like, I, I was thinking about it and I was like, I don't think in Inferno they ever once say his name. They might that's mention right. Milbert, That's right. You know, but not Essex necessarily. Mm -hmm. But he's at the Milbury house and that's Milbury's a name he uses a lot in the future, right? Yes. So, yeah, um, continuously. Also, when I got to that line, when I said Milbury house, is <laughs> entity, I, wanted, I wanted to end, like insert it as though it was like Siri reading, but, because it, it does not fit with like, how she talks. And I was just like, <laughs> Milbury House. <laughs> 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 because, 
She's so, definitely talking like, even though she is definitely from the 20th century, she talks in this super crazed, grandiose way. So Demanda, like, Demanda and I did a whole Patreon on Madam Sanctity together. Madam Sanctity is Tanya Trask, the daughter of Bolivar Trask, the creator of the Sentinel, oh, who has powers that. that like lost her in the far future with Rachel Summers. Uh, if we ever do this as a stage play, Demanda, we will call her Madam Sanctity, and you will play her as Glinda the Good Witch. <laughs> <laughs> And, like, she's she's such a... Cause so, in her chronology, because, like, when we were doing it, her entire appearances are backwards. So, like, her first appearance in, like, the Cable and Dayspring series are, like, towards the end of her appearances, her chronology-wise. So, this is, like, in the middle. So, we still don't know that she's Tanya Trust. We just know that Sanctity is a woman from the future who has, like, time and manipulation powers. Yeah. Um, but and also I love that she's very like Ursula, where she's like, I can only do this for two days though. Like I'm <laughs> I'm a very busy lady doing future things. Again, doesn't concern you, but I need you to do this. My <laughs> single favorite moment in today's recording, uh, the listeners will not be aware of. There was a line, one line, short line of dialogue that Justin read that was supposed to be Alicia's, and she was outraged. (laughs) (laughs) Silently battling about it. I told Justin, so I love Newsies, and I always say, these is for the Newsies! And I was like, I'm going to put in my Newsies voice. And then he said my line, and I was like, (laughs) I I got confused on the colors in the script. I don't know which fan I am. I do appreciate Uh, Alicia using the 20th century newsy voice because I know I know that we are still in London, but as we had a problem with in the first issue, and we'll continue to if I keep getting different parts from Cyclops, uh, I can't. I can only do like early 20th century low class accents, and that's it. So yeah, I'd like to apologize to everybody for my British accent. Yes. Alicia, what are your thoughts on Rebecca's journey in this issue? Well, reburying her dead child, meeting a time traveler, and returning to the attics. Yeah, I think, you know, she's going through it. She's going through a lot. I think she's questioning herself and her life a lot right now. And like having to rebury your child is just, it's just a rough, you should only have to do that one time if you even ever have to do it. So I feel like. I'm proud of her for, you know, at least following Jean, you know, like she could have been like, don't go in there and then just like run away. But she was like, don't go in there. But okay, I'm going to go in there with you. So I'm excited to see where she goes next. I have I have a lot of feelings for Rebecca. I think she's living a rough life, you know, yeah, dealing with a lot of trauma. Hopefully she she could see something in Jean that inspires her. She's also real pregnant. Yeah. (laughs) Super duper pregnant. She shoots her shot with that, you know, like, oh, well, you could give up your insane science. <laughs> that would be the one thing that would make yeah. me happy. You yeah. know, like, oh, um, that's what I would say. <laughs> There's one thing you could do. And he's like, mm, another thing. Name another thing. <laughs> Anything else. I like that Jean is immediately like, you're mourning, but now you're my assistant. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like. it's it's like he really nails it like i mean you know that's that's the thing with this version of gene it is a hundred percent gene this is gene and scott like a thousand percent 
Essex Slim is mind red. being blown by seeing a mutant. Like, my theories are correct, but also I'm hundreds of years behind. Uh, he also has a reference to Livingstone's visit to the dark, darker continent, which is an unpleasant uh, phrasing for Africa, uh, but also kind of akin to the 18th century scientific dialogue that we are sticking with. Uh, Justin, what were your thoughts on, uh, on Nathaniel's journey in this episode? I just I love the the fake grandstanding of him like oh I could never do such things like <laughs> but now well, well I got the blue guy here and he's doing weird stuff we could all do weird stuff together. He calls Apocalypse the monster. I'm like, <laughs> like, like he is your your guy. You are the same <laughs> kind of scientist. He's just better at it than you. Apocalypse has tech enhanced a bunch of little marauder guys running around, including Cootie Tremble, who we will see again next issue. Spoiler. Oh, good. Uh, I can't wait. Meanwhile, yeah. he's referring to the stupid chains of weakness and morality as he kind of <laughs> casually blasts some people, but gives speeches to and recruits others. Uh, Arturo, did you enjoy your portrayal of Apocalypse in this episode? I did. I, I, it was a, a beefy role. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed all the monologuing. Uh, I love that they went to the Hellfire Club, the London chapter, the London Hellfire House, and <laughs> just like they're wheeling and dealing, and the Braddocks are there, and like Shaw, and yeah, that was fun. I, I was just saying, like the, they picked like the two perfect people, uh, like Shaw and Braddock, like their whole like family legacies, because they definitely talk and and like show that extreme like British white. I am definitely superior to everything else. Like Braddock even calls him a foreigner. Braddock, you aren't even from this planet. Like you're not even. <laughs> you don't from even go here. <laughs> like what are you talking about, this foreigner? Like, sir, get it together. Uh, okay, Sarah and Steve, will you give us one more uh, Ernest, Gene, and Scott call out? Scott, Scott, Gene. <laughs> Uh, it cracks me up every time I listen to that because Cable, although he knew his parents as red and slim, his girlfriend and later first wife is a woman named Aaliyah who went by the name Jen Scott, which is yeah, like I, I a combination of his parents' names. And it cracks me up every time I think of it's that. like, yeah, it's, no kidding. It's very X-Man of him. Isn't it like a Nathaniel? Yeah, it's just like, yes, it he is. He also named his other daughter. It's, after, it's a, yeah. After his other wife. It's a Nate like, Gray thing. <laughs> He is, he's, he's not very um, prolific when it comes to names. Even though he has a million of them, he cannot name other people. Oh, <laughs> this was... No, it's it's great because Nathan is named after Nathaniel because they have this weird fucked up family legacy where Sinister is his real dad. I, I love it. We'll see at the end of this series, spoilers, how that ties in even further. One of the, my favorite retcons in all of history, but... We'll and get, his we'll full name, that. his full name is Nathan Christopher Charles. So he's named after all three of Scott's dads, Mr. Nathan Sinister Christopher Charles Days Green, a, a Scotty Sun Summers. Yes. <laughs> oh, Morning so many star, delicious things. I just, uh, I just want to say before before we get out of here, I just want to say my my absolute favorite Cyclops line in this entire comic was just like the thing with Apocalypse, where he's like, "So this, this, this large transforming man, <laughs> did he talk? Did he talk about?" The importance of being strong. He loves being strong. Is that right? It's like a, yeah. it's, he's like really into being strong. Is that <laughs> a thing? Here, uh, here is the best line in this episode. Listen, wooden cages, iron bars, concrete walls. They might imprison you, but they don't make you a prisoner. It's what's inside you that does that. 
Yeah. But, you know, let's all just take that feel good <laughs> statement and, and wrap up for today. What a genuine delight to hang out with you guys. This is a, a joy. If you have any final thoughts, I'd love to hear them. Uh, we're going to release this next Monday with the uh, Fantastic Four 103 episode featuring Jeremy Whitley and Alex Segura. Uh, if you guys want to plug anything, please feel free and let people know where they can find you online. I already did my outro in the earlier part of the episode. So, uh, Justin and Alicia. Hey, we're just in Alicia. What's up? Uh, we're the XY Podcast. You can find us on the internet at the XY Podcast. Pa- <laughs> at the XY Podcast. T H E X W I F E, as in X Men, not former wife. I don't know. We're talking about comics every week. The new comics. You want to talk about them? Come hang out with us. You you're pretty fun to hang out with, uh, Demanda. Hi, I'm Demanda Martini. You can find me across all social media at Demanda Martini, D-M-A-N-D-A-M-A-R-T-I-N-I. When this is released, I will have just come from an X-Men photo shoot. Uh, I love that. Um, I also just want to say, I talked about last week uh, that I won a competition. The venue that I won that competition at closed four days later. So I will no longer be performing there because it's closed. Um, Your well, impact. Wow. <laughs> I, I, I was the Beyonce Super Bowl. Like it was so much. It was just over. Like, and, um, but no. Uh, so, uh, but again, come follow me uh, online. Uh, I've got. I do have a bunch of stuff coming up. Um, and uh, yeah, hope to see people at convention soon. Steve. Hi. Yeah, it's me, Steve. Uh, you can find me on still Twitter. Um, I'm, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> I just, I'm just that kind of trash. That's the kind of place for me. I'm on Twitter. I'm at Howdy Duda. That's H O W D Y D U D A. Um, as has been pointed out, it is a pun on Howdy. How, yeah, you know, you know what it is. Anyway, I'm also over on Blue Sky at the same handle, Howdy Duda. Um, you can find me on Mastodon or Tumblr and a number of other places under that handle. I don't really check those places as much. And, um, in terms of things I have to plug, stay tuned because I'll be on some more of these Grey Malkin Lane trials. I hopefully have an episode coming up on X of Words that I have yet to schedule, but I'm talking about it now here on the air. <laughs> so it's got to happen now, right, Ash? That'll be coming out. It'll be about Rare Flavors by Romby. And also, I uh, I don't I, I usually like to plug a thing at the end here, but I don't have a podcast currently. So uh, read the second volume of The Night Eaters by Marjorie Liu and Sana Takeda. It's really good. It doesn't matter. They're not going to see this video. It's called uh, Her Little Reapers. Fantastic second volume. Yeah, it's good. Yeah. Uh, Sarah, congratulations on the Wheel of Time shout out in this episode. <laughs> you want to go next? I'm Sarah Sentry of sarahsentry.com and you can find me at sarahsentry.com and any other thing that says my name on it, which is um, if you do a Google search, maybe you'll find something. I'm not actually sure what you'll find if you do a Google search. sarahsentry.com is probably the best place to find me, but otherwise you will find me watching episodes of the X-Men animated series so that I can just ruthlessly steal from the actor that plays Jean Grey. (laughs) And finally, Arturo. I'm Arturo. You can find me at Mr. Toybox on Twitter and Instagram. Um, I will also plug Wheel of Time one Wheel more time. Wheel of Time. <laughs> Wheel of Time. Stream it, read it, live it, love it. Um, and this has just been a blast. I'm really looking forward to the next chapter, which I guess will be the beginning of Nathaniel Essex's 
centuries long obsession with Scott Summers' DNA. <laughs> uh, again, what a genuine delight. Thank you all for coming back on. Uh, we are recording this on Monday, November 6th. Yesterday on the 5th, I had the delicious and incredible opportunity of recording the trial of Sunfire with an incredible cast of uh, jury members. Uh, it's an intense conversation with a lot of serious intellectual kind of cultural analysis and a lot of really silly laugh out loud moments. So watch for that around Thanksgiving as well. Thanks, everybody. We will see you back here next week, I think. Bye. Thank you for listening to Gray Malkin Lane. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. Gray Malkin Lane is produced and recorded in Salt Lake City, Utah, with music and editing done by my husband, Michael Bell, and promo art done by the incredible Seth Martell. Look for us on Patreon, where we are releasing weekly episodes about obscure characters and facts. Uh, It's a great way to participate with the podcast for only just a couple of dollars a month, and it helps support what we are doing here. Also, the best way you could help Graham Alkin Lane is by sharing and liking and subscribing, but also please leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'll see you back here next time on Graham Alkin Lane.